My guest first up this morning is a woman labelled one of the most dangerous people in the world by Big Tobacco. Dr Judith Mackay, the director of the Asian Consultancy on Tobacco Control and a senior advisor to the World Health Organisation, has spent over 40 years of her career fighting against the tobacco industry and raising awareness of the dangers of smoking. Only days ago, the world-first law that would have created a smoke-free generation in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was repealed by the coalition government under urgency in Parliament. The legislation would have banned the sale of tobacco to anyone born after the 1st of January 2009, reduced the number of outlets able to sell smokes from 6,000 to 600, and removed 95% of nicotine from cigarettes. The previous Labour government passed that smoke-free law just months ago, it would have started coming into force this year and next. I spoke with Dr Judith Mackay from her home in Hong Kong and began by asking her what she thought of the now scrapped smoke-free generation legislation. I thought it was wonderful that New Zealand was taking the initiative and introducing um, a law on a smoke-free generation. Other countries have considered it, some states have done it, but New Zealand was really pioneering the way of introducing this law that would protect children. Um, Subsequently, the UK government is looking at that law as well. But uh, I mean, New Zealand got an awful lot of accolades from around the world as to taking forward this particular policy, along with the idea of the retail shops being drastically reduced, removing the nicotine and so on. So New Zealand last year was seen as very much at the forefront. And I would just add to that, that the world needs countries like New Zealand to be able to take these measures forward first, just like Australia took forward the smoke, the um, plain packaging first. And then now many countries have followed. Countries like Cambodia and Laos can't pioneer such legislation. So it was really important what New Zealand was doing last year. Just before we move on to the current situation, I mean, ultimately, the law did amount to prohibition. And does prohibition work? I'm not sure the law really amounted to prohibition. And, you know, when many people talk about prohibition, the concept is that that's not really the way to go to ban cigarettes because they look at the US and alcohol 100 years ago and it just led to crime and corruption. So what most countries are doing is what New Zealand has been doing, and that's pushing back all the frontiers by taxation, by smoke-free areas, by pack warnings and so on, pushing it back. And New Zealand was simply taking it one stage a little bit further and protecting generations to come. Mm. And so the new government uh, comes in in New Zealand and that law that is, you know, newly minted on the books is to be scrapped. What has been the international view of that? I think there's complete confusion, to tell the truth. There seems to have been U-turns and leaks and contradictory statements and confusion. I think the world is looking um, with almost, not bemusement is the wrong word, because it's really such a serious issue. But they're they're looking aghast, in fact, at what's happening in New Zealand about these various U-turns. And it does not send a good message to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, everybody is struggling with tobacco control policy to to make it in in the first place, to implement it. And to see a country like New Zealand with these U-turns and confusion is not good for not just New Zealand, but for global tobacco control. Because the situation now is essentially, you know, the status quo of the last few years continues. 
nonetheless, though, this confusion, do you think it is likely to continue to lead to the smoking rate in the country falling? I think that every country has got to do all it can to reduce smoking. We we can't forget that smoking kills up to two thirds of people at smoke. You know, there's no other consumer product on the market that remotely comes close in terms of danger, none. Um, and so it, it's, it behests the government. It's a responsibility of a government to do everything it can to move forward, to push forward and to get those rates down to protect the people. Most people don't regard it as interference or a nanny state, they regard it as a government responsibility, just as it would be to, you know, take out a cancer component in a factory, for example. Uh, most people would think it's a responsibility of governments to make sure that the environment is safe for people. So I think probably New Zealand has done well up to now. It's done well up to now also on tobacco industry interference. There's an index published every two years. And New Zealand in 2023 came actually the second best after Brunei. It did very well indeed. But there's a lot of suspicion around the world that why is this happening? I mean, is this again, the most likely conclusion would be that there is tobacco in industry interference in government policy. It's happening everywhere. It happens in New Zealand, but to a much lesser extent up to now than the rest of the world. So I think the rest of the world is feeling that why can this happen? And that certainly seems to be the most likely um, cause. This is an area that you have worked in for decades now. Do you see the hand of big tobacco here? I've certainly been working in tobacco control in Asia, in Hong Kong, where I'm based, but in Asia since 1984. So I've, I've seen most of this before and even U-turns by governments. But usually, should I say, that it is, that it, it is an influence by big business, by big tobacco, when confusion like this arises. I, I don't know specifically in the case of New Zealand. You know, I'm not in New Zealand or I'm not in New Zealand. And it's best place for the reputable health authority in New Zealand to actually make that call. But certainly the, the trend would be that there is interference with government policy. Because the New Zealand government is saying that, for example, these laws that uh, were due to come into effect this year and next year that were put in by the previous Labour government, they were likely to lead to... Um, an uptick in a black market of cigarettes, uh, or it may lead to greater crime, a larger number of ram raids on small stores and that kind of thing. Um, it appears that those are the sorts of talking points that Big Tobacco would put out. Um, it sounds very much like the tobacco industry playbook. What they do if a government is going to introduce um, any effective measure, they will say that it will lead to illicit trade, it will not work, it will cause um, small businesses to go out of business. This is par for the course. This is the argument of the tobacco industry around the world. And in fact, they use it in particular with taxation. Any country that tries to increase taxation, they will say it will lead to illicit trade. And for example, in Hong Kong, um, our head of customs has said three times in the last 10 years that there is no sign that the illicit cigarette market has deteriorated as a result of increase in tax. If you actually look at the figures, 
others. These are empty threats. This is a paper tiger, the tobacco industry. But this is their playbook. This is what they say time and time again. And in fact, there is a thing in tobacco control, slightly humorously called the screen test, that if the tobacco industry scream, we know, it, in fact, it is a uh, a policy worth taking on. Um, if they ignore an issue, then we know it probably won't really work. And they certainly scream at taxation. They scream at the um, banning e-cigarettes. They scream at smoke-free areas and bans on advertising. And they make no um, comment at all, for example, on health education in schools, which we know does not prevent young people from smoking. They don't scream about, you know, ban on sales to the under-16s, because up to now that the way it's worked has been shown to be ineffective. So the screen test, I think, is probably quite strong here, that it shows that what New Zealand was doing last year was on the right track, that it would reduce smoking rates. And all the evidence is, is certainly in that direction. It would, it would have an impact and bring down, particularly in children, taking, um, uh, thinking of taking up tobacco. We know that these measures are effective. We also know that many people who do continue to smoke are often poor. Uh, one of the other areas that has been raised by the current government is the idea of a freeze on excise because smokers bear a heavy burden of the cost of cigarettes. Is that still a useful method to curb smoking or has that reached its peak? Oh, it hasn't reached its peak at all. In fact, if you look at the um, banks, like the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, uh, the uh, Economic Forum, and all of these, they reckon that taxation is a win-win measure um, in terms of reducing disease and disability, as well as increasing in revenue. And they have all said that actually it's most important for young people because it prices cigarette out of their pocket. It's as simple as that. And it also has a very beneficial effect upon the poor because it's the young who don't start and it's the poor who tend to quit smoking. And it makes a tremendous influence on their family income to start with, as well as their health. I mean, we can't forget that the poor, it's a poverty trap. Smoking is a poverty trap for poor people. And it leads to household consequences in terms of diversion of family income. So the government, in a sense, by putting up the taxation, is really helping the poor. And it happens. It, this actually happens. It helps the poor make a decision to quit smoking as well. So all the major international um, economic experts certainly feel that the poor, the extra taxes borne by them, um, uh, is in fact reduced. The place of e-cigarettes, vaping, in all of this as well, because we can't really talk about tobacco these days without talking about that. Um, how does that play in, as you see it, in New Zealand, where there's a pretty light touch around regulation of vapes? Yes, it's very interesting in the world that there are basically three countries, that's England, Canada and New Zealand, that I would say have actually embraced e-cigarettes and feel that this is a very useful, what is the so-called harm reduction. Um, most of the world is going in a completely different direction. There's 40 countries now that have banned e-cigarettes and the heated tobacco products. Um, there's about 100 countries that have regulated them quite seriously. Um, so these three countries, in a sense, are almost... Um, a test case for what will happen if you allow these cigarettes on the market. 
The problem started about a decade ago with Public Health England saying that e-cigarettes were 95% safer than cigarettes. Now, what they were doing was a small group of people were simply looking at the known toxins like nicotine and tar and saying, oh, they are safer than cigarettes. What they did not do was to look at the social science. Are they a gateway for youth? Do they actually help people smoking? What about the advertising? There's appalling advertising and promotion that, for example, you see in the uh, U.S., where it is allowed. This is not directed towards middle-aged and elderly uh, smokers. It's it's all directed towards the young, the trendy, the non-smoking youth market. And uh, many countries now have banned it, as we have in Hong Kong completely, manufacture importation sale. We've banned it on the basis we don't know what's in them. They're all different, these products. We don't know what the harm is. And I would just remind you that even with cigarettes, we're now discovering new harms of cigarettes 100 years on. The evidence is still accumulating. So we certainly don't know the harm of these products. We have found that children who use these products are up to three times more likely to use combustible tobacco products in the future, the usual cigarettes. Um, it seems to offer little help in quitting. We've got this appalling advertising. We're worried that it will renormalize tobacco use just as cigarette prevalence is falling. And also, you know, the tobacco industry over history have misled us. This is now the third time. They said that filters were safe. They said tar cigarettes were safe. And now they're saying these e-cigarettes are safe. And certainly filters and low tar did not prove to be safer at all. And, you know, many low and middle income countries are still struggling with the combustible tobacco epidemic. So to add another epidemic of a new trendy product that so appeals to young people most countries feel they can't really afford the risk and who has come out pretty strongly you ban or you regulate this product regulate it quite seriously so mm. new zealand is going is swimming against the tide in terms of what the rest of the world is doing and even though for example last year when they introduced these rather forward-looking innovative measures there was still a concern yes but you know what about the e-cigarettes in New Zealand and what's going to happen there big tobacco companies I've seen um, saying that they want to be part of the solution if you like that these in quotes safer products um, that they put on the market are you know are a way of of doing that and of taking some level of of responsibility but presumably how do you view that? Is that simply slightly tweaking your business model? I think that because documents from the tobacco industry were put into the public domain because of a court case in America, we now know that the tobacco industry over history has basically lied. I mean, I'm... I'm hesitate in some senses to use that word but for example they said that uh, uh, nicotine was not addictive they completely misled their clientele their smokers in terms of the dangers of their product um, and so now those documents are in the public domain they can no longer say that cigarettes are not as dangerous as the health people would have it so they've now changed their tactics into saying yes then was then now is now we have changed we want to be part of the solution. We want to work with you. But, you know, I can remind you that their job is to sell cigarettes. Their shareholders demand it of them. They have got to increase their products and their sales as much as they possibly can. And so they're not part of the solution. But 
uh, they are certainly trying to ingratiate themselves with health authorities, with governments, by saying, you know, we're here to help you, we're the best to advise on our products and so on. And during COVID, for example, they even started working with the Canadian government in developing a vaccine with multiple headlines about tobacco to the rescue. They're trying to sort of align themselves now that they have a seat on the table. And the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is WHO's one and only international convention um, since it was formed in the 1940s, it basically says that the tobacco industry has no place at the table in the formulation of policy. Of course, they need to be consulted with government about implementation of smoke-free areas on the pack warnings and so on, but they have no place in the implementation of policy because the history is that they absolutely interfere and try and derail it. You're listening to Saturday Morning with Susie Ferguson on RNZ National. My guest is the British-born and Hong Kong-based doctor, Judith Mackay, the director of the Asian Consultancy on Tobacco Control, also a senior policy advisor to the WHO. What is the global situation for tobacco sales? And I suppose particularly in Asia, which is where you live and and where you're... um, focus has been for so many years. Are cigarettes still being pushed? Is smoking still being encouraged in countries where big tobacco is able to do so? Oh, where they can advertise and promote and uh, give sponsorship, for example, they will do so. Um, The tobacco industry tend to be pretty careful about abiding by the laws of the country, but where they can, they do. Um, What is happening in terms of of sales and prevalence of tobacco is that around the world, the uh, sales of prevalence is slowly coming down. If you get a 1% decrease in smoking a year, you're doing pretty well. This is not a, there's no quick fix. It takes a long, determined time to try and get the smoking rates down. So what we're seeing around the world and in Asia in particular are that these smoking rates are gradually inching down, even in countries, for example, like China and Indonesia and India, that those three countries together have half, half the, uh, Uh, cigarette consumption in the world. So they are coming down. There's a bit of a worry in a couple of countries in the Middle East and Africa that prevalence may be going up very slightly because of better economic circumstances and they're able to buy cigarettes, for example. But the whole global trend is sort of downwards. And this is offset, however, by population increases in the world. So we're going to have billions more people by 2040 in the world. So, um, you know, it's a struggle. But the good news is that cigarette consumption is coming down. And the even better news is that that when people quit smoking very quickly, even within a week, um, it starts to have beneficial effects in terms of your blood pressure and your heart. And certainly heart disease by five years is really reduced dramatically. And even the risk of cancer comes down within a decade. So, you know, the good news is that our bodies are remarkably able, um, if caught in time, they're remarkably able to undo some of the damage done by cigarettes. So it's always worth quitting at any stage. Um, And just going back to e-cigarettes for a moment was, um, I mentioned that Hong Kong has banned e-cigarettes. The prevalence of smoking in Hong Kong is now in single figures. It's 9.5%. And we have done it with complete bans on e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products. So um, Hong Kong and other countries have shown you can get the prevalence rates down without having to rely on these new tobacco products.
Mm. To talk about those health benefits, I was inter- I was really interested to read that research recently about um, how the human body, as you say, can bounce back really remarkably well, even after years of smoking. Is that something that, um, you know, that doctors at the medical profession will have been surprised by, do you think? So we were pleasantly surprised to find how well quit people who are quitting did. The exception to that, of course, is people who have already got lung cancer, for example, or people who've damaged their lungs completely and have got chronic obstructive airways disease and their lungs are scarred. You can't undo scarring. So there's a couple of things that mean, actually, what they do mean is that the sooner you quit, the better before some of these permanent changes take place that you can't reverse. But overall, smokers do remarkably well, better than we had thought. I agree with you on that. Hmm. If vaping is perhaps the new frontier with big tobacco, what do you anticipate being perhaps one of their next moves, some of the next tactics and how they may diversify their business further? I was interested you mentioned that vaccine work in Canada. I think the tobacco industry will not give up easily, for sure. They've got a very, very lucrative business. I mean, their profits are are bigger than the GDP in many countries. They are an incredibly powerful, uh, well-financed industry. And they, they fear no one. They fear no governments. And their job is certainly to sell cigarettes and sell tobacco products, sell nicotine products in whatever way, shape and form they can. And in doing this, they interfere with government policy. The tobacco industry interference index show there's not a country in the world that doesn't have tobacco industry attempting to intervene. In fact, in Hong Kong, when we banned um, the e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products a year ago, one veteran legislator said to me he had never, ever in decades seen anything like the lobbying and the pressure put on governments by the tobacco industry, not just on tobacco, not even just on health issues, but on any issues. I mean, they fought it tooth and nail um, for us to ban the vaping products. And even the government here said that ministers of health will put under daily pressure and harassment and demands to be shown documents, translations. I mean, the pressure upon our government was enormous to do that. And going back to the screen test, where if the tobacco industry screams, you know that it's a very good measure to actually introduce. We passed the screen test with flying colours in Hong Kong, because obviously the tobacco industry realised that that vaping is, in a sense, their immediate future. But I have to say they show very little Um, activity in terms of reducing their combustible cigarettes. It's not a case, as they have said, yes, you know, we want to make cigarettes safer and healthier. Where is any evidence that they're reducing their combustible cigarettes? Even the head of Philip Morris has said that they would be, you know, fine and away selling cigarettes way beyond 2040. So I don't see any much effort in terms of any reduction in the sale of combustible cigarettes. They're simply adding on to their armamentarium of different products. And I think that will continue in the future. Already, there's all sorts of things they call teapods and chewing and these so-called harm reduction products. I think this is where they will be going in the next 10 years. Mm. Something I should have asked you earlier, but I'm going to ask you now because it's just jumped into my head. Um, When we were talking about the situation with New Zealand, where there was the smoke-free law that is now being rolled back, coupled with not so much in the way of regulation around 
vapes. Is that kind of situation the perfect one? Or perhaps not perfect, but is that a pretty good setup for big tobacco? Will they be pretty pleased at those two things sitting next to each other? I think big tobacco will be delighted at what's happening in New Zealand at the moment. And I think that's an indication that it will have severe consequences in terms of, you know, future tobacco use and the future health of people in New Zealand. To talk a little bit about uh, your place in all of this, as you say, this is something you have worked in for decades. What have been some of the tactics that you have dealt with personally? from big tobacco because I guess they probably don't like what you say very much I think it's different now from what it was 40 years ago in 1984 I moved from working in hospital medicine into tobacco control and in those days it was only place in Asia because there was really nobody else doing that on a sort of pan-Asian front and I think the tobacco industry had Um, expected to be able to gallop their Marlboro cowboy into Asia and just basically take over with very, very little opposition. And you could just imagine how they reacted to finding um, the fact that somebody was beginning to oppose them and stand up to them. And I was going around many countries in Asia and Vietnam just after the war. I was going to Mongolia. I've been three times to North Korea to work with the government there. I'm working with all these countries and um, several of them, for example, Mongolia actually asked me to draft their first tobacco control law. So the tobacco industry certainly don't challenge a big business in this world without repercussions and I was I was called every name under the sun in fact being likened to Hitler Um, I had two court cases threatened against me which went absolutely nowhere so they were just a threat and also an attempt to say to the population who were listening one was on uh, RTHK the radio here in Hong Kong Um, you know she doesn't know what she's talking about we're going to take it to court nothing came of them But certain things happened and it got to the stage that my own government in Hong Kong offered me 24-hour police protection because they felt that I was in some danger. Now, that has changed completely over the years because now there is an army of people. There is now an international convention, uh, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. New Zealand, of course, has signed and ratified this, as have um, 183 countries in the world, just showing how necessary it was. It was one of the fastest UN treaties of all time because countries, particularly the low and middle income countries, sort of needed it. So the governments now, all of them, have adopted policies and there's meetings, there's discussions and so on on tobacco control. There's non-governmental associations all over the place in um, India, in China, in Indonesia, certainly in New Zealand, Ash, for a very long time. So there now is a sort of army of people who are now working on tobacco control and it's become institutionalized instead of a few of us, you know, holding up placards almost as activists way back in the 1980s. It's become established core public health policy. And so the tactics of the tobacco industry have changed. And I'm no longer a sort of lone voice in the wilderness. It's become really across the board. And that's a very good thing. And I've just come back from 
COP10 of this framework convention in Panama. And it was really encouraging to see hundreds, I mean, really hundreds of people, both inside and outside governments, who are now dedicated to working on tobacco control. And funding from that has not been easy, but some has come from the Bloomberg um, uh, Foundation, some has come from the Gates Foundation. Um, governments in general are not putting enough money into it compared with the severity of the problem, but it's certainly a very different uh, ballpark uh, very different scenario from what it was 40 years ago. And I'm very encouraged by that. Hmm. Nonetheless, you were given the moniker of the most dangerous woman in the eyes of big tobacco. I mean, what did you make of that, first of all? And the uh, there was a in the UK, there was like, not exactly a trade union, but there was an amalgamation of all the tobacco companies into a sort of institute. And uh, what they said was, I was one of the three most dangerous people in the world. So this is going back some decades, but I've also been re-awarded that honor. So I put it on my CV, I'm very proud of it, because it means that obviously what I'm doing is the right thing in terms of reducing cigarette use. So um, the um, tobacco industry, I'm still not the, exactly their most favorite person, but I'm still going strong. And I often say I'll be working till I'm 100. And when I teach, I teach at Oxford and Cambridge University in the UK and Chinese University in Hong Kong. And I tell all these young masters of public health students, postgraduate students, if they go into tobacco control, they've got a job for life. This is not going to go away easily or quickly. And I think the last 40 years have been an indication of that. There is no quick fix for this epidemic. So what it does mean, however, is that governments do have to do all they can, all they can, including some of the measures that New Zealand had introduced last year, um, all of those things to try and bring this epidemic further down. It sounds like you are... Uh, in some ways rather energised by the abuse that you faced. Yes, I often say I have the tobacco industry to thank for my ever going into tobacco control. I was in hospital medicine and three things happened. One was our wards were full of smokers, many of whom had end-stage disease. And I realised that the health of the community would never be improved by curative medicine. Secondly, I became very much involved with the women's movement and still I'm a very committed feminist and in those days, women's health was defined very gynecologically. But I, re I realized that more women were being killed by tobacco than by every method of birth control combined, and that, in fact, tobacco was a women's issue. And then thirdly, BAT, and I often credit them for this, they put out a document saying that I was um, unrepresentative, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about. They, the tobacco industry, were the best source of reliable information. That was it. That was my tipping point. I was so outraged that the tobacco industry had done that. But I often say I thank British American Tobacco for, you know, my lifelong, my next 40 years of work in tobacco control. And it does energise me. I mean, I just need to be threatened with another lawsuit or called another name. And I'm, I'm up and running again, Susie. <laughs> Sounds like you passed the scream test. <laughs> thank you. Hey, look, thank you so much. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you, Judith. I really appreciate you taking the time. That is Dr. Judith Mackay, Director of the Asian Consultancy on Tobacco Control and also a Senior Advisor to the World Health Organization.